0: Evening, ain't we got fun Not much money, oh but honey Ain't we got fun The rent's unpaid dear And we haven't a bus But smiles were made dear
1: for people like us hello and welcome to episode 1763 of effectively wild a fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our patreon supporters i'm meg rally of fangraphs and i am joined today by sarah langs of mlb.com to preview the world series
0: sarah thanks so much for joining me thank you so much for having me i was so excited when you reached out i just need to geek out here for a moment. Effectively Wild was the first podcast I ever listened to. I was in college and I became a runner in college and I went to school in Chicago and I learned that I could not run outside when it was below 20 degrees. And... I also learned that I can't listen to music when I work out. And so I said, I guess I should get into podcasts. People talk about them all the time. And a lot of people I followed on Twitter were frequently talking about Effectively Wild. I was following everybody involved with it. And I was like, I should give this a try. And uh, it always stands out to me that that was the first podcast I listened to. So thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad that you were able to join me. It's funny. I also have, you know, a long stretch where my engagement with the podcast was as a listener. And I sometimes wish I could go back to those stages because (laughs) it was, you know, it was such a a fun and I think kind of eye-opening experience for me to be a listener of the show and to hear Ben and Sam talking about baseball the way that they did and feeling like, oh, there are other people out there who kind of engage with this in the same way that I do. That's so cool. So yeah, I'm always a little bit jealous of our listeners forgetting to remain (laughs) listeners only. We're going to talk about the World Series We're going to preview it in in True Sarah fashion uh, by Going through a parade of sort of fun Statistical facts and oddities but before We did that I thought that we could talk a little Bit about your experience this Year not so much as a writer but as a Broadcaster you were one of the women Who was involved in baseball's first Women only broadcast that's A weird way to describe it I never (laughs) know quite what Words to use here but you along with Melanie Newman and a number of other uh, Women were part of a, a Ray's orioles broadcast that was youtube's game of the week and it was just it was a delight to watch and i thought i'd start by asking you sort of how this came about how you got involved with it and then what your process was for preparing for that broadcast
0: well first of all thank you so much for tuning in it was it was an incredible experience I'm i'm so honored to have gotten the chance to be part of it And, you know, the way it came together was really, I'm not sure, behind the scenes and far above me in terms of those kinds of conversations that were going on. But all that happened for me was I got an email from one of our coordinating producers over at MLB Network who said, hey, would you be free to do this game for us? You'd be with Alana Rizzo and Melanie Newman. And my first thought was, oh, my gosh, they're incredible. I can't believe they want me to work with them. And so I, of course, I said yes immediately. And it wasn't really until we started getting some requests from reporters and, you know, doing some press about it. That I realized it was a first. I didn't really even have the thought of, oh, I wonder if this has happened before. You know, I'm just so familiar with Jess Mendoza and Melanie and, you know, so many other outstanding women in this field that it never really occurred to me to think, oh, has this happened before or not? And, you know, I, I would hope that this would resonate with you as well. You know, the fact that when I was asked to do it, I wasn't asked to be part of the first all-female broadcast, but right. that I was asked just to do a broadcast, which is something that I've been lucky enough to do a couple of times for MLB Network, that meant a lot. You know, I think a lot of times as women, especially in these spaces that are still mostly male-dominated, sometimes there can be a feeling of, okay, is this being done to make a point or is this being done because we know what we're doing and we should be getting this opportunity. And, you know, even though I had the confidence to hope that I was getting the opportunity for the right reasons, it just means a lot that it wasn't, hey, we want to do this thing and we want you to be part of this first. And even if they were thinking that, that wasn't what I heard initially. And that really did mean a lot to me. And in terms of preparation, I mean, I, that was, I think that was the third game I've gotten a chance to call. And I feel like my preparation has certainly, uh, morphed over the course of time and getting those chances. But I really tried to just go through the rosters and, you know, as you were kind of alluding to before, making sure I have a fact about everybody, make sure I know the point, you know, of each guy. What is he doing at the plate? You know, what is his approach? What has he done lately? But, a lot of the preparation was really kind of just what I do on a nightly basis, which is watching every single game and making sure I'm aware of kind of what's going on. So I certainly put extra effort towards that. Uh, There's no question there. But a lot of it was kind of just, you know, I'm watching every team on a nightly basis regardless. So it's not like, oh, now I need to get to know the Toronto Blue Jays. I already knew the Blue Jays, you know right i know what you mean
1: it's like you want to i think that there's definitely room in the discourse for us to talk about our experiences as professionals working in the space and that's going to be true of You know, of of anyone who works in baseball, if it's interesting to people, I think, especially if you're part of a group that historically hasn't been as well represented in the the writing or broadcasting ranks, but it is nice to be able to have that conversation evolve to the point where you're able to just say, like, here's what I know about baseball. You know, this is me sharing my perspective on the game and being able to engage with it in real time. I think that that is its own very powerful sort of moment professionally when you're like, oh, I'm not that those conversations about what it's like to be a woman in baseball aren't important. I think especially for other women it is yeah. they're very important but it is also nice to be able to say well I I know the baseball part too <laughs> like that's the <laughs> that's the relevant sort of nexus of my expertise and now I get to share it with people absolutely what do you hope to see from broadcasts like that in the future? Because I think you've said in a number of different places, and I agree that, you know, this is hardly going to be the last time that we have booze like this. In fact, we saw several more over the course of the season. So what do you hope is sort of the next evolution of broadcasting there?
0: I think it's exactly what you said. You know, there were a couple more over the course of the regular season. And I think getting to a point where, you know, it doesn't really stand out. You know, it, as you yeah. mentioned, it's it's kind of – It's a very weird balance because you want to be able to bring attention to these things and put forth the notion for anybody who might be unaware that, of course, these things are possible. But the true definition of equality in this kind of sense is when you're not even aware of it, you know? So I think it's just continuing to push forward and continuing to see those kinds of opportunities. And whether it's all female booths or just Melanie and Alana and everyone just continuing to get more and more experiences and more and more opportunities as they do. I think it's just continuing to gain more voices in this space who aren't You know, the traditional white male or, you know, whoever you might previously associate with broadcasting and just continuing to get more individuals involved. I mean, one of the things that I kind of loved in sort of the replies on Twitter, and I don't usually read replies on Twitter whatsoever. um, And (laughs) that was probably not the tweet when it got announced to read them on, but there were people saying, why not so and so? Why not so and so? And putting forth other women. And I didn't take that against me or against any of us, but I thought that was amazing. Like It's great that these aren't the only three people who could have done this. We were just the ones who were chosen. And I think that's really important as we continue to build that roster and get to a point where it really just doesn't matter.
1: Yeah. I think think that that's a really good perspective to have on it, right? There are so many women working in broadcasting now or who might be, as time goes on, who will sort of be natural candidates to be in the next you know phase of this i think you know we certainly want to make sure that it is a an opportunity that really represents the broadcasting community and also the community of fans right to make sure that there are more women of color involved and it's really exciting to think about the different voices that we might be able to hear involved in broadcast going forward as we've sort of addressed the question of doing the first one of these and whether we can right now it's how do we make sure that it continues to evolve and include in a way that represents the sport and the people who care about it, right?
0: Definitely. And I like what you said about the fans because that's actually something that really sort of dawned on me as we spent so much time talking about this leading up to it. I mean, sure, I'd done previous broadcasts and no one ever had asked me anything about (laughs) it. And here we are doing all these interviews, which was amazing. And I was so glad that baseball as a sport was getting that attention. But I certainly had a lot of time to sort of think through it um, as I was being asked questions. And I think that when people say, why does this matter, beyond the concept of representation and beyond the fact that, you know, some young girl or young boy can look up and see that this is possible for them, I think it matters so much more even beyond people aspiring to this job. I think it's the fans, like you said. Fan bases we've all been in ballparks, we all see ballparks on TV. fan bases are completely diverse, you know, yeah, everyone are baseball fans. There are so many different people, and I think it's important for those fans to see themselves reflected in the broadcast, even if they have no aspirations to go on and do that one day. yeah, so I'm so glad you mentioned that because that was something else that sort of occurred to me as we talked about this back in July. Well, we look forward to whatever the the next broadcast that involves
1: you is. (laughs) I think you you have carved out such a a cool spot in in the baseball discourse because you're obviously avidly involved in sort of every team. As you said, you didn't have to like get up to speed on, on the Orioles or the Rays, but I think that It is a a thing that I have really appreciated about your Twitter presence and your writing is how seamlessly you weave statistical information into telling a story about the game and telling it very enthusiastically, right? It's so obvious how much you care about the sport and, you know, there are a lot of people who sort of try to share statistical facts that they find interesting or oddities about the sport, you know, things that have never happened before. What is your process for uncovering that stuff? And how do you manage to do it
0: so quickly?
1: (laughs) Because I think that's one of the things, especially this postseason, I've just been struck by. It's like, wow, Sarah is right there with that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. First of all, that, that really means a lot. I mean, in terms of process, a lot of it is really, you know, every night builds on itself. And you know this, being so deeply involved with the sport. Like, I, I don't take a day off. I probably should. There's a separate conversation there. But even <laughs> yeah. if I were to, I'm still aware of what happened in the game. So, you know, as Joey Votto was building his home run streak in July, right. I knew he homered the night before. I knew he homered the night before that. And so I think a lot of it is sort of that awareness um, which isn't meant to make it sound difficult for anybody to do this. I mean, you don't need to be as crazy as me and watching every single game uh, all throughout the season. But I think it's just keeping track of whatever is interesting and keeping, you know, being aware as storylines build. And I think that's the easiest way maybe to describe sort of the conclusions I come to or what I choose to dig into is you see something happen and you have this moment of, oh, didn't that happen the other day? Or right. That seems really rare. And a lot of it also just builds on itself. I mean, I've been doing this in some way or another for, I guess, seven-ish years now. I mean, I would argue I've been doing this my entire life as a baseball fan, which goes back to being about three years old. But in terms of doing this professionally, it's been about that amount of time. And, you know, you build an understanding of what is rare and what isn't and what is going to be worth looking into and what isn't. And I think that there are probably things I could look back at that I did in like 2016 where I would look at it and be like, no, why did I spend time on that? That wasn't worth doing. And that's kind of just like the experience that you gain. But in terms of speed, which was, I know, another part of your question, I mean, (laughs) I really don't have an answer to that. I mean... My first job, uh, my first full-time job in sports, was a research working as a researcher in the ESPN Stats and Information Department. And obviously, they they have a Twitter account, so people are probably familiar with the facts that they share out there. But the primary purpose and function of the researchers in that department is building the graphics you see on screen, whether you're watching Baseball Tonight or SportsCenter, NFL Live, whatever show you're watching. And that is really that fast paced sports environment that people talk about. So I could have been sitting in the Sports Center studio and Tom Brady got suspended. I think that happened a couple of years ago. I don't even. And I needed to have three graphics ready. And so I think it's like that understanding of the speed necessary now feeds into how I take the time to look stuff up in the moment as something is happening in a postseason game. Gotcha. And are there
1: particular are there particular tools or, or websites that you use to sort of collate all that stuff together and extract it?
0: Of course. I mean, well, I use Fangraphs, of course. My <laughs> favorite thing about Fangraphs... I promise I wasn't asking for a plug there. <laughs> no, but I'm happy to give it. My favorite thing about the Fangraphs site, and this is like super in the weeds, is that you can export all rows of something. And I'm yes. sure that your bandwidth or whoever hosts the site may not be thrilled about that fact. <laughs> But it is outstanding. And as someone who, you know, using Microsoft Excel is obviously a big part of what I do, you know, taking information, whether it's uh, results on Fangraphs or baseball reference or wherever, and then doing something else with it in Excel. And the fact that you can export all rows is amazing. So that is my like super in the weeds thing for I'm sure there are listeners of this podcast who will, you know, uh, sympathize with that. But obviously using that a lot, using baseball reference, as I mentioned, uh, the stat head tool and, you know, baseball savant. Obviously, people love home run distances and exit velocities and we can do so much with pitch type stuff and everything else. So I would say those are pretty much the main. Yeah, those are pretty much like the I guess the triumvirate or something um, of the main sites.
1: Well, you mentioned that people love home run distances, and they sure do. This is a question that is, I think, hotly debated. In we certainly get emails about it all the time. I know that it is a subject of frequent discussion in the Effectively Wild Facebook group. What, to your mind, makes for a good statistical fun fact? Because I think we've all seen, you know, the the tweets that sort of twist themselves in knots trying to find someone who is the first guy to have done a thing on the 13th of October when the moon is full and there's a good smell in the air, right? And it it's like, all right, you can, you can relax. Baseball is fun enough on its own. We don't have to twist it into knots to, like, extract some weird bit of um, statistical minutiae here. So what, to your mind, makes for a good fun fact?
0: Well, I think automatically right off the bat what you're saying is true that, you know, sometimes we need qualifiers. Um, We usually need one or two, but when there are too many, um, I tend to take a step back and say, okay, am I squeezing this into too much of a box? But I think a good fun fact, you know, makes people think, oh, wow, I didn't realize that, but doesn't necessarily lead them to then say, well, would that really have been possible before this year? And, you know, something that doesn't necessarily have people already coming back with the well actuallys. Mm-hmm. I think that a stat that surprises people is a good one. But I think, you know, there can be stats that are good, in my opinion, or good facts that are pretty random and out of there uh, that the reader or the person interacting with it might never have thought to look into. But I really feel like the things that resonate with people best are the things that, you know, I always go back to part of why I do what I do is because I grew up with two parents who also love sports and love baseball. And we would ask these questions around the dinner table and we didn't know how to answer them. And now I answer them for a living, which is really fun. And I think that a true really good fun fact is one of those questions where the average person doesn't necessarily have the way to answer it, but it is something that they're asking. They're sitting there watching this game happen, wondering if anyone has ever had a three homer game when facing elimination like Chris Taylor did a couple of nights ago, something like that. I think that's my answer, but it's a great question because I think that, you know, I think we are both aware of this, just being in this baseball Twitter space. I think that the question of what a good fact is, is kind of constantly out there for debate straight up just on Twitter. Sometimes I see things, and I certainly don't judge. People can look into whatever they want, and there's so many powerful tools out there, but sometimes they see something, and I'm like, mm. Yeah, I don't know if that's really that <laughs> interesting, but sometimes those go viral and that's fine. Sure. But I think the more you interact with all of this, the better of that kind of sense you get of whether it's really worthwhile or not.
1: I think a lot about how different all of our childhoods would have been if we had had the internet at our disposal to look up the random stuff that we thought about at the dinner table or like, you know, in the recess yard. It's like, "Mm, if I had been able to look that up, would I have made friends (laughs) 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 if I hadn't had it there to debate with them instead? Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a I think that's a good working definition that aligns pretty closely with how we've tended to think about these things. It's like you you have to leave room for qualifiers, but you don't want there to be too many of them and you don't want them to walk away the the reader of the fact to walk away thinking, "Well, oh, do I really need to care about <laughs> that? Is that actually a special thing?" So, I think that's it. I think you're striking the right balance there. Thank you. Well, we as we all know, we will have an Astros Braves World Series. That is what is ahead of us. We're recording this on Monday, so the World Series starts tomorrow. Thank you for recording on your your day off of of baseball. (laughs) Before we get to the World Series, though, and I didn't prep you for this in advance, so if the answer is no, no worries. But were there any sort of statistical facts to emerge out of either of the championship series that struck you as like particularly revelatory when it comes to explaining how those teams managed to advance to the World Series?
0: Well... I think that every single Eddie Rosario stat falls into that category. (laughs) Yes. Because, you know, this is a player who changed teams, who is exactly who he's always been. You know, I was looking into a bunch of stuff with him last night and trying to figure out what's been different for him in his time with the Braves. And the truth is that there isn't all that much that's been different. Eddie Rosario has always been a free swinger, a high contact guy, and he's making a lot of great contact right now. He's walking a little bit more than he used to, so he's being a bit more patient in a super small sample size in the postseason. But it's kind of fun to see a guy just be who he's always been, and it's working. And we've seen that happen before. But I think you know you can go back to his batting average was third highest in a single postseason series minimum of 25 plate appearances. His OPS was sixth highest. And I think all of those stats really tell us part of why the Braves are here right now. And I think on the Astros side, it was actually going to be something I was going to mention as we were previewing, but might as well say now, is these two outruns. You know, if you're watching the broadcast, especially with sound on, it was something that was constantly mentioned. And, you know, sometimes something is called out and I'm like, okay, I look into it and maybe it isn't super notable, but in this case, it really was. They're up to 45 two-out runs. There's only been three teams in a single postseason with more two-out runs. And one was the Dodgers last year, who of course got two extra games, a whole extra round uh, with the wild card series. And I think that just shows the relentlessness of the Astros' offense, which I really think was underrated throughout the year. I mean, I can remember pulling up on Fangraphs, again, not a purposeful plug, uh, (laughs) but looking at the team WRC Plus leaders, and they were that leading team in terms of overall offense, at least for the last two months of the season. I remember pulling that up. That's kind of how the page defaults when you pull up team batting. And thinking, nobody's really mentioning this. And obviously that's not specifically pulling out that two-out prowess, but I think overall it's just showing us how deep that lineup can be. And the two-outs is kind of just emblematic of overall their strength.
1: I like facts like that because they dovetail so nicely with how you feel while watching the game, yes. right? It's like, you you know, we would sit there and I was like, maybe Boston will pull this out. But there was just... This sense that even when they got to two outs, it's like you are not safe. Like don't go in the basement. It's gonna end badly. This is that phase of the horror film, right? Like there's just this mounting sense of dread, I imagine, if you were a Boston fan, that you were just you were just not safe until the house was on fire. (laughs) And it it proved it it proved that they got, got at the end. So I like facts like that where you're like, yeah, the the statistical record is backing up my emotional experience of this basement.
0: Definitely. You know, and that kind of gets to if I can modify my definition of what makes a good fun fact a little bit. Something you said sort of reminded me. One thing that I always tell people about stats is that I think that a good stat, and not necessarily a fun fact, you know, but just overall a stat like that, it either needs to confirm what you're thinking or completely dispel it. I think sure. that those are the ones that are most effective. So either to tell you that you were completely wrong or completely right. I yeah. think when the answer is, Oh, it's kind of, but not really. I don't think those are very effective. And, you know, a lot of my job, especially early on was explaining to former player analysts how a stat <laughs> could help them make a point. And to that end, having something that is really strong in one way or the other is much easier to sort of explain on TV. So when you mention that with you're sitting there and it feels like the inning isn't over, even at two outs when, of course, it isn't, but it can often feel like it is. That's completely proving what you were feeling watching the game.
1: Okay, let's look ahead to the World Series. Which team would you like to start with here? Either team. Let's start with Atlanta then. So what are some fun facts that you can provide to us that help to explain what we might see from Atlanta in this World Series?
0: So my favorite fun fact for the Braves entering this is what Jock Peterson has a chance to do. So he won the World Series last year with the Dodgers, of course, and now he is like the mascot of the Braves. I know Blooper (laughs) is a mascot, but he's wearing the pearls. Everyone's wearing the pearls. The Atlanta Falcons were wearing the pearls on Saturday (laughs) night. I mean, everybody is all in. And amongst all of that, you know, he got off to a great start. He had the two pinch hit home runs, which was already tied for the most in a postseason Career. He hasn't been hitting quite as much lately, but he's there. He's fine. He's contributing. He could become just the ninth player to win a World Series in back to back years with two different teams. And the most recent guy to do this was Ben Zobrist in 2015 with the Royals and then 2016 with the Cubs. And I can list off the other guys. Jake Peavy did it with the Red Sox and Giants. We had Ryan Terrio with the Cardinals and Giants. Jack Morris with the Twins and Blue Jays. Don Gullett with the Reds and Yankees, Bill Skowren with the Yankees and Dodgers, Clem Labine with the Dodgers and Pirates, and Ellie Clark with the Yankees and Indians. And one quick thing I will say about this, because I've, this is actually a story I wrote for MLB.com. It's up there right now. And uh, certain stories just really get the emails going from certain readers. <laughs> the qualifier here is that you have to have played in a postseason game for each team. So this was in conjunction with the Elias Sports Bureau. And yes, there's guys who were on a team for 20 games and the team did win the World Series. He probably got a ring. He was nowhere to be found when they were winning the game or winning, you know, the clincher. So I will mention that. But I think it's pretty cool that Jock Peterson could be part of that after all of his experience with the Dodgers in the postseason and now being with the Braves after a trade during this year.
1: Yeah. Well, and, you know, like... Signed with one team, traded the whole. Yeah, yeah, the whole shebang. It kind of puts it in. He's in. he's an interesting company there. What else do you have when it comes to Atlanta?
0: So something else for the Braves and these are all kind of historical. And obviously, as I mentioned, I kind of look into everything. But the historical notes are kind of what I gravitate towards, especially in a moment like this where we have the Braves. Finally winning a pennant and they snapped a very long streak of, uh, consecutive playoff appearances where they hadn't even reached the World Series. That was 12 straight. Obviously, with this being their first pennant since 1999, but the other streak that they have going that, you know, I'm sure all of their fans are hoping ends is they have now gone entering this year 16 straight postseason appearances without winning a title. So this is the type of streak where we're not going to count 2021 until or unless they lose the World Series. So sure. That's 96 through last year, essentially, and that is two more consecutive uh playoff appearances than any other team in postseason history, and the prior longest before this was 14 by the Cubs, which went from 1910 to 2015 wow. before they finally won in 2016, and the Dodgers actually had a 13 postseason appearance streak that they finally snapped when they won it last year, so... I would really like that to see that happen for them just because this is a note I've been updating for them for a few years. And right. I always <laughs> would like to see a bad streak end for them. But I, it's fascinating to think about because especially, you know, so many people I think still associate the Braves with those consecutive division title teams right and of course we know they did not win very many world series in that span they were there they won the one and you know this is such a different team now but I would love to see them shake that and they have shook off so much of the sort of bad juju that they had I mean they hadn't even won a playoff series until last year in a really long time so I would just love to see them continue pushing forward past all of that I always wonder as someone who grew up a Mariners fan
1: and has obviously not seen that team in the playoffs for a long time, like which ends up feeling worse if you're a fan, if it's, you know, just never getting anywhere close to the World Series at all. I mean, they've never made the World Series even when they were making the postseason, um, but never even getting close or being sort of perpetually near but always at a slight remove from it. I always wonder which of those feels worse. I would I'd be happy to um conduct an experiment where the <laughs> Mariners go to the World Series and lose and then I can report back on how that feels. Um just to, you know, I- introduce some science to our process here, but Important which are, which of those do you think is is the better experience?
0: <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I'm glad you asked it as better experience because I think which is worse versus which is a worse experience. I I think those are almost different questions. I mean, sure. I think that in general fans are more engaged when the team is making it to the postseason, right? So I think getting there and getting so close even if you don't win probably feeds baseball more feeds engagement more sure. and Leads to more emotions and not being there at all, you're just a different type of fan. It's just more probably apathetic. But in terms of what feels worse, it probably feels worse to get that close and not win it. And it doesn't feel as badly to not get there because, you know, you know that you can make your October plans and you're fine and you're good. Um, (laughs) And you're not spending money on playoff tickets. So it's interesting. I'd be curious what people who are still fans of their teams and Just in general, what people think. I mean, I had a friend who used to say that he thought that championships were more for the organization than for the fans. That fans, you go to parade, you know, it's an exciting moment, but ultimately it's the stamp of approval that the front office did everything right, the players get paid a lot more money and everything else. But that for fans, it's much more about just being in it, that there's not that much Different to the fan experience. And again, I grew up a fan of the Mets. I don't root anymore, but I can't speak to that because I have not seen my team win or I had not seen my team win the World Series, but I can see how there might be a thought that once you get there, it's not maybe all it's cracked up to be. I mean, it's still amazing. This is why we're watching. We want to see a team win the World Series, but I can see how there is a difference in that experience from the inside versus as a fan from the outside. Yeah, I think that that makes good sense.
1: Okay, what else what else about Atlanta strikes you?
0: Well, you know, Charlie Morton strikes me, of course, and Yeah. It's really awesome that we've been watching him in the postseason for so long. It it's really incredible. You go back to the Astros and the Rays and now here he is with the Braves and I mean, I, you know, he is a guy who you ask about sort of the process. Anyone who is 37 plus, automatically I'm going to think, okay, is there an age note here? Right. Uh, So when he was announced as a starter for game one, I looked into it and he was going to be 37 years and 348 days old. On Tuesday for Game 1, he'll be the ninth oldest pitcher to start a Game 1 of the World Series, the oldest since Roger Clemens in 2005. So that's a moment where Game 1 is a qualifier, but it was an important one to me because that's the showing of, this is the guy we want to start off the series. And we know that if a series goes seven, often the team doesn't get a chance to make that choice. but. Most of the time they get to line up for, okay, we want this guy to be our game one starter. And that really stood out to me that he is that guy and that he is at this advanced age. I mean, he's still Charlie Morton. He looks exactly as he's looked for a while now in this sort of second act of his career, which is sort of how I think of the last I have six, seven years for him at this point. So it's always really fun to see a player like that succeed. I really enjoy that. And on a team with so much youthful exuberance like the Braves, I mean, (laughs) Ozzy Albies, and I know Acuna is hurt, but him too. And even Guillermo Heredia, I mean, they have so much youth and excitement to them and Charlie Morton is like the perfect antidote to that to just make it clear that they are a serious team that might win the World Series so I just love that kind of contrast
1: yeah, I, I appreciate that um, Acuna is still, you know, he's in the dugout, and obviously, like, you know he's hurt because he's not out there, but he seems like he is um, filling in as one heck of a hype man in, in yes. whatever role he can there. So it's it's at least nice to see him in the dugout, even if we'd prefer yes. to see him in the field or in the batter's box. Well, is there anything else about Atlanta that you, that you want to share, or shall we pivot to Houston?
0: The only other thing I want to share about them kind of also involves the Astros. So maybe it's our sort of pivoting moment. But, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Dusty Baker and pretty much everything I'm going to share with you about the Astros will be Dusty Baker related. But I want to give that moment to Brian Snicker as well. Uh, yeah. He's not 72 years old He's 66 But you know We know the story Of how long he's been In this Braves organization And everything that he's done Managing at every step Of the way for them And you know I can still remember I, I haven't Googled this So if my memory Of the exact report Is slightly off But I seem to remember That when he was named As the interim After the team Fired Freddie Gonzalez That there was a thought That the Braves Might replace him At the end of the year And I seem to remember I remember reading a story about how Freddie Freeman and other veterans on that team said, no, we want Snit to stay. And that's kind of how I approach watching them, is that this is their guy. They were with him at other points throughout, and he was a coach, and he was a manager in the minors and everything else, and he's their guy, and he's here. And you know, just kind of to the point of two managers who I think, I mean, everyone deserves to win the World Series. I would never say that anyone doesn't. But these are two managers where I wish they could team up and they could both win because I really (laughs) want it for both of them. Yeah, And I know it may not be super intriguing to everybody else to view this through the managers, but those are kind of the baseball wives that really stand out to me. And this is the oldest combined age between two managers in the World Series. So that was the stat that I was kind of getting to there. Two guys who are 66 plus, of course, Snicker 66 and Dusty is 72 and just such a, it's such a wealth of experience in the yeah. game. Not just those years, but just all of the stories, everything that everyone has to say about both of these individuals just constantly blows me away. And I think it's a really great encapsulation of kind of the older school side of the sport. I don't mean analytics versus not. I think that sometimes the phrase old school ends up misuses mean numbers versus not or maybe not misuse but that's not how I view it but these are just two individuals who have been through so much in the game in a way that younger people just haven't had a chance to interact with yet
1: yeah well I think everyone loves a good Dusty Baker fact so (laughs) what do you
0: have for us on Dusty? Oh, my gosh. I have so many stats <laughs> on Dusty. I was so excited pitching to uh, Andrew Simon, who's my editor, of, okay, if they make it, can I do a whole story about all of these Dusty stats? And, I mean, there are so many ways to approach him and the fact that he's finally back. But one that really stood out to me is that he managed 54 postseason games between... Game 7 of the 2002 World Series with the Giants, and Game 1 of this World Series, which will be on Tuesday. 54 postseason games. So that is the most postseason games managed in between World Series appearances for a manager. Wow. And. There's another stat out there about just longest time in between, obviously. It's 19 years since 2002. And there's Bucky Harris, who was a player manager in like 1925, and then managed the Yankees in 1947. But the difference is there weren't all of those rounds, and he wasn't even in the World Series in all of those years in between. So I really think that the 54 games in between really gets to the point of everything Dusty Baker has been through in this span and yeah. it's just incredible. I, I can remember last year, you know, they came back from that 3 0 deficit against the Rays and we were wondering, are we really going to get another 3 0 comeback completed? Are they going to win the ALCS? And of course they were, I think below 500 or just above it. And we had a ton of postseason teams last year and it didn't feel like the right team. To finally bring Dusty that championship, but I'm so glad that the Astros brought him back for this year. They kept up with that second year of the contract and that the team was good this year and that he gets a chance to taste that again.
1: I'd like to see him get a ring, but I take your point that last year felt like, you know... With the expanded field and the state of that roster, which was not nearly as strong as this, even though, you know, there are aspects of that team that I think were stronger than what their record ended up reflecting. Yep. It's like this year, you know, this was just a good a good baseball team. This is one of the best teams in the American league. And it's a, I think a different feeling when teams like that make the world series, we could kind of look around and say like, this is a worthy squad for, for the moment, not someone who kind of squeaked in. Although sometimes, you know, 106 win teams end up squeaking in through the wild cards. So it's, (laughs) it's, you know, it can kind of vary year to year. What else about dusty kind of strikes you?
0: So two other things that I looked into with him were, If the Astros do win the World Series, just trying to quantify how long he has waited for this. So he has managed, he's managed 78 postseason games in his career entering the World Series. So if they were to win, he'd be at least 82 at a minimum. That would be a sweep. Who knows what's going to happen? So the most career playoff games managed at the time of a manager's first title is 65. So oh, wow. Dusty's not on the list yet, obviously, because they haven't won yet. And it was Dave Roberts last year. Oh, interesting. Which I thought was so funny. And it yeah. makes sense. I mean, we have yeah. all of these rounds, right? And the Dodgers were in it a lot. I mentioned them with the 13 straight postseason right. appearances without a title. It does make sense, but it was really interesting. I was going through the list and I was like, wait a minute. This is going to be Dave Roberts. So this could happen in back to back years with two very different managerial tenures. But if we also look at that from the regular season wins perspective, so Dusty Baker has managed 3,722 games, which is a huge, huge number. It's uh, 12th most among all managers in baseball history. The most regular season games managed at the time of winning one's first title Was two thousand five hundred and seventy four, and it was Bruce Bochy with the Giants in two thousand ten. So I thought that one was really fun too, sort of poetic because Bochy, of course, managed the Giants. Dusty managed the Giants, and uh, that's of course where he started his career. So obviously, (laughs) the three thousand seven hundred twenty two would blow that out of the water if they were to win, but. You know, there you can't even sum up everything he's done or even begin to try with these numbers. I think, you know, just listening to Dusty Baker speak, I think you know this and any baseball fan, if you were watching postgame shows when they clinched or anything else, you just hear him talk and you hear the love of the game and how much it has just been embroidered throughout his entire life. So these were just an attempt to try to sum all of that up. But again, he's he's not a number. He's just Dusty and we're yeah. so lucky to have. Him. Him, you know,
1: yeah, for sure. It's um, I think you're right that you can just have an appreciation for for all the baseball these guys have seen, right? And all of the different iterations of the game and sort of the trends that have come and gone, and how we think about smart baseball sort of changes over the years, right? And they have been around to see so much of that, and that wealth of perspective and experience is just. So for folks like us, it's like, oh, it's going to take a long time before we're anywhere near that. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> and it's certainly hard to replicate when you're a media member versus someone who's with a team every day. So yeah. I think that's a really, a really cool part of it. Is there anything about this Astros team as it plays baseball that was striking to you? And I, if you have more dusty facts, I don't mean to cut those off. We have time for more dusty <laughs> if there's more dusty to be
0: had. Um, The other dusty facts are kind of the ones people already know. The ninth guy to win a pennant in both leagues, and uh he'll be the second oldest manager uh mm. to be in the World Series behind Jack McKeon, who, of course, won his first title in 2003. He was 72, but he was an older 72. But just looking at the Astros more broadly, I mean, as I mentioned, um one of the things I'm really keen on with them is certainly the 2 out runs. I, I do think that really just sums up What that offense has been and the WRC plus, I mean, I've mentioned that to so many people, especially over the last few weeks, because I really think that falls under the category of something that actually is really simple, but I don't think a lot of people necessarily realize And I think that the Astros, the Astros are fascinating to me this year, because I think that there was so much focus on them last year, especially in spring training. And then the pandemic shut down the season for a while and we came back in July and everything was a little bit different and there were no fans in the stands. And they managed to go from the team with such a target on their back to a team that I don't think people were really noticing all that much. I mean, I feel like a lot of parts of their season until we got to the postseason here in October sort of flew under the radar. Yeah. So I think the fact that they had the best offense in baseball and, you know, I'll keep repeating that really does surprise people. And that also just goes back to show that not every fact has to have a million qualifiers. I mean, just knowing that they were the best offense in baseball, I don't think everybody knew. So that's certainly something that stands out to me with them. And, you know, I think it's kind of just going to come down to that pitching. You know, it's the question of, I mean, Fran Valdez coming out in that second-to-last game with the eight innings. We hadn't seen eight innings in a postseason game since Kershaw in that first round the Wild Card right. Series in 2020. I think it was 126 starts by pitchers in between, so he doesn't have to go out and throw eight innings necessarily here in game one, but if he can go out and continue to give them length, I think that that probably puts them decently Head and shoulders above the Braves, but we never know what's gonna happen with these games.
1: Yeah. I was gonna ask you, and, and you've maybe answered this on the Astros side, like as you look at each of these teams and their rosters, you know, if you had to pick sort of the thing that's going to propel them to a World Series win and the thing that is going to hold them back from that, is there anything that jumps out at you for either squad as sort of the the make or break aspect of their roster?
0: Yeah, I mean, as I was saying before, I I do think that it's the pitching for the Astros. I yeah. think that, you know, we saw, obviously, with Lance McCullers Jr. getting hurt right towards the end of that White Sox series, that really changed the tenor of their pitching. But the way that Framber Valdez and Luis Garcia looked in those final two games, yeah. that team can win a World Series easily. Yeah. yeah, And they have shown with their offense, and they showed it in those other Red Sox games, I mean, they won the game where Zach Granke didn't go deep at all, right? And Zach Granke is sort of an unknown quantity at this point. They brought him in to be a reliever in the postseason. They ended up needing him to start. But if they can win those kinds of games and then have those two guys, uh, Valdez and Garcia, as really strong starters for them, I think that's a really, really good team. And for the Braves, I mean... You know, I think that the offense has shown that it has mostly woken up throughout the postseason. So I, I almost wonder if it comes down to guys like Tyler Matzik and whether this uh bullpen can t- continue to do what it's doing in high leverage situations. I mean, Will Smith has looked good for them, but I watched him in the regular season. There yeah. were some questions and those haven't surfaced yet, you know, so does that come up on the biggest stage or does he continue to be good for them? But Tyler Matzik has been amazing. I mean, the 11 strikeouts was runners in scoring position, which is tied for the most by a reliever in a single postseason. And he hasn't even played that final round yet. And they didn't play in the wildcard game. There's no extra games that you can point to and say, well, he got this or he got that. It's been really great to see. And of course, he's such a great story. So I think if that bullpen can continue to be good for them, That's the make. And if it struggles, that's probably the break.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, he's so, so incredible a story. Like his story is just remarkable that he is on a world series roster uh, as an option out of the bullpen would be incredible enough that he is like an obvious option for Snicker when he's like I got to I got to shut this down right we have we have runners on second and third and no outs who do we turn to it's Tyler Matzik. and if you yeah. told someone that 5 years ago they would have been like what are you talking about is everyone el- has everyone else <laughs> been kidnapped from that bullpen that he is the option so it is really a remarkable story it's not as if he you know he he still walks guys like he is he is effectively wild
0: (laughs) if we wanted to
1: come up with a term but the way that he has been able to remake himself in sort of his second run at the majors is just incredible
0: yeah that's why we love baseball is that these things can happen I mean you know Tim Kirchhen says this all the time and to kind of take it from him and just take it a step further I mean these things just don't happen in other sports you get amazing stories you get Kurt Warner was, what, working in a grocery store or something like that and then came back. and. But you just don't get things that are so incredible and heartwarming and improbable in quite the same way in other sports to me. And I think a lot of it is because of the long season, because of how much bulk is required to really play a full season. I mean... The fact that we're seeing Jock Peterson with the Braves, the fact that Jorge Soler, I mean, what, he had a double in his first plate appearance back. He says he's going to get vaccinated. These are all wonderful things to see. And the fact that Eddie Rosario is having the postseason he's having. We haven't even talked about Adam Duvall because he hasn't done quite as much. But there's another sport where you acquire four guys in a month while you're under 500. And no one knows what you're doing. You're trying to replace an MVP candidate. And then it works. There's just no right. way to translate that to the NBA or the NFL or the NHL. So um, that's also the Tyler Matzik story. You just don't get a moment like that in another sport.
1: Yeah, I think that one of my favorite fun facts about Atlanta, and this I read in uh, Jason Stark's column from this weekend, was that they had spent, and I didn't realize that it was quite this long because the East as a division was just such a, does anyone want to win this division kind of a a race, but they sort of set a, a new record. It took until their 111th game, To be above 500. Yeah. And now they're playing in the World Series. It's just like for them to be able to, as you said, remake their outfield the way that they did. And to have it be guys who, you know, were non-tendered and traded for nothing. It's, It's really remarkable that they have been able to kind of get where they are
0: given where they started. Totally. And I love that stat. I mean, I saw that one out there. I think it's 111, as you said, and I think the date is August 6th, which is just incredible to me. I mean, obviously we're throwing 2020 out of there, but August 6th does not feel like a date where a team that makes it to the playoffs, let alone the World Series, gets to above 500. And I've loved seeing that out there. And I saw it out there as also, I think it was like the fourth latest or something for a team to even make the playoffs, something along those lines. Yeah. and. Again, I just come back to Alex Anthopoulos and that entire front office and the decisions they chose to make when the team was not even above 500. I mean, I I believe Brian Snicker was talking about this after the game when they clinched and, you know, kind of this conversation of, you know, you guys keep playing, we're going to get you into a good spot. I'm paraphrasing, but something along those lines. And it's really amazing to think about. I mean, you can go back to the standings on, I want to say they got Jock Peterson right around July 4th, 5th. It was a single digit in July. So before the 10th. And if you look at the standings then and where they were and where other teams were, and yes, as you mentioned, the NL East was not exactly the most competitive division, but there are so many teams that were around where they were middling. And these Braves were in the World Series. I mean, it's just amazing.
1: Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Well, are there any other sort of statistical facts either about the World Series or about the 2021 season in general that sort of have staying power for you?
0: Well, I think the biggest thing that stands out to me with the Dodgers losing and this being, of course, a Dodgers team that we all thought was going to win 110 games. And of course, the Giants came along and the Padres weren't as good and all of those things happen. We still haven't had a repeat champion. Yeah. The last repeat champs were 1998 to 2000 Yankees. This is the longest. It has already been, I think, for the last three or four years now. And it just continues to be added to the longest stretch without a repeat champion in any of the four major North American sports. And. I I love that. I mean, I love the parody in baseball and it's pretty amazing because this was probably the most confident I had felt in a while making predictions on, you know, March 31st or whatever it was saying, okay, we're finally going to get that repeat champ. Yep. You know, I don't think any of us really expected the Nationals to repeat last year. I think there were definitely some questions heading into that season for them, but these Dodgers were projected to be the best team in baseball. And of course, the best team in baseball does not always win the World Series, but I think that really sums up just what we got out of baseball in 2021. And this was a really great, I mean, I always, I sit here and I'm like, I love this stuff. And I mean that completely genuinely, but this was a really cool season. I mean, what the Giants did really stands out to me. You don't get a team that really, really surprises you in this way, where we get projections starting in, what, January? It just doesn't happen anymore. And I think all of that kind of leading to this moment where we have these 88-win Braves in the World Series is really, really cool.
1: Yeah, you know, it it was nice to have, it was nice to just have baseball back on its normal schedule <laughs> yes. uh, for 162. And it kind of, at, at various points, felt like anything beyond that was just gravy. But yeah, in a year where we thought we were... Where we were very sure about things because I sort of shared your um, confidence that LA was just like the team to beat. And if ever yeah. there was going to be a repeat, it was going to be the Dodgers. And to have so many genuine surprises and, you know, some of those, depending on who you root for, were probably less fun. Like I imagine the twins wish that 2021 yes. had gone differently than than it did. But, you know, for us to have sort of the, the surprises that we did and to have them be teams that were, you know, not just fluky and out, performing you know what we would expect from their base runs record but like you know the giants were just a good baseball team and we got those projections wrong was was really exciting because sometimes i think when you have so many teams that are consistently good it can feel a little like history repeating itself so it's always nice when we when we're jolted a little bit you know
0: yes definitely well sarah where
1: can people find your work do you have anything that you want to plug specifically before we wrap up here
0: Oh, sure. I'm on Twitter at Slangs On Sports. That's Slangs On Sports. And I do uh, a Twitch stream on MLB's Twitch channel on Thursdays where I just talk about baseball. I don't know exactly what our offseason plans are going to be, but it's really fun. Twitch was a brand new thing for me this year and, uh, it's been really fun sitting there and kind of talking to myself, but talking to people <laughs> in a chat and just yeah. going through everything. So, uh, hoping to do that in the off day uh, of the World Series this week. So, uh, if anyone's around, usually two o'clock ish Eastern, uh, feel free to check it out.
1: Awesome. Well, before I let you go, I am going to make you make a prediction. Who do you have winning the World Series?
0: I do have the Astros winning, but I think the Braves are going to give them some trouble. So. Yeah. I made a pick earlier for something I had to submit, and I said six games. I'm kind of waffling between five and six. I would love it to go seven. I don't want to be back into November with no baseball. Yeah. But six, I'll go with six again. But I'm really excited for this one. It should be really fun.
1: All right. Astros and six, you heard it here first. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Sarah.
0: Yes, thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. That'll do it for today. You can support
1: Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going, keep us ad-free, and get access to a few special perks. Phil Thomas, Mike Bents, Chuck Heimbach, Alex Tam, and Jamie Kay. Thanks so much. Speaking of perks, we'll be hosting another playoff livestream for Patreon supporters who have pledged at least $10 a month during Game 4 of the World Series this coming Saturday, October 30th at 5pm Pacific, 8pm Eastern. I'll share details on how to get access to the stream via the Patreon messaging system as we get closer, and if you'd like to join the stream but aren't yet a Patreon supporter or are supporting the pod but at a smaller monthly amount, don't worry, there's still time to sign up or increase your support. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild, and you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for us coming via email at podcast at fangrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. I'll be back later this week with new guest co-hosts and new episodes. Until then, enjoy the World Series.